join me in our latest episode of HR Visionaries. Today we're going to talk to General Ben Hodges. He will tell us a lot about leadership in the army. Stay tuned. Welcome to HR Visionaries, where we unlock the secrets of modern HR. I'm Benjamin, your host. Join us as we shed light on today's HR universe with HR leaders and innovators from across the globe. Whether you're an HR pro, a business leader, or just curious about the future of work, this is your shortcut to the forefront of HR innovation. Brought to you by Hire, the AI talent attraction platform. Welcome to our new episode of HR Visionaries. I'm very much looking forward to my guest today, General Ben Hodges. General Hodges, thanks for taking the time. Thank you for the privilege. Ben, could you let us know who are you? Can you quickly introduce yourself? So, um, I am the former commander of US Army Europe. I was in the Army, US Army, for 38 years. Uh, my last assignment was just down the road from here in Wiesbaden, Germany, which is the headquarters for U.S. Army Europe. And uh, after that, the last six years, I have lived here in Frankfurt, where I am a NATO senior mentor for logistics. Uh, I offer consulting to various companies that want to do business in Europe, in the European Union. I help them understand NATO requirements, for example. Um, I spend the majority of my time focused on helping uh, Europe and the United States understand the threat from Russia, uh, as well as the other threats that we're facing, and making sure that uh, the relationship between Germany and the United States, Europe and the United States, stays strong. So those are the kind of things I do. When I was at U.S. Army Europe, we had about 35,000 soldiers permanently assigned to U.S. Army Europe. They were deployed all over Central and Eastern Europe, but the majority, of course, were in Germany and in Italy. And then there were another 15 or 20,000 that came across on a rotational basis, as this was to give us more capability as a response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine back in 2014. So that's what I was doing, and it's what I do now. And I'm super interested also to hear your thoughts about the current environment. But um, first of all, I would want to understand, so you joined the army at a very young age, probably. <laughs> so so uh, what was your, what were your thoughts about joining the army? Mm. So uh, I did not come from an army family. My father was a private in the army back in the 50s, like, you know, we had the draft back then. And so... Uh, I grew up in North Florida, near Tallahassee, uh, and at the age of 18, um, I had decided I wanted to go into the Army myself because I was attracted to the idea of uh, the purpose of the Army, the mission, uh, being with other people who were similarly committed, and I liked the physical aspect of being in the Army. So I went to West Point in uh, 1976 after high school. And four years later, graduated in 1980 as a lieutenant in the infantry and headed straight to Germany, which, um, of course, during the Cold War, that's, that was the center of everything. It's where I, where I wanted to be. Um, of course, um, the Army in the, in the mid-70s was not a great place. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was right after Vietnam. 
<laughs> That's probably the only reason I was able to get into West Point uh, because not many people were, were asking for it at that time. I don't think I, I could make it in today. Uh, but even though we were in really, really difficult circumstances in terms of morale and readiness of equipment and, and so on, and our manning was particularly weak. I mean, my first platoon was supposed to have about 38 soldiers. We probably had 20. Um, so way under strength because recruiting, by this time the Army had become all volunteer. And uh, it, was, uh, it was not an ideal time. We were still suffering the repercussions of the disaster in Vietnam. So um, I have to say, though, that I loved it. I loved the challenge uh, because we were so undermanned. Um, I had to, I couldn't waste anybody. I mean, every single person had to um, be operating at their peak and had to be motivated for what we were doing. And so, in a way, this scenario where we were so undermanned and where I did not have the right level of sergeants. You know, where I was, was supposed to have a, a sergeant with this much experience and a certain rank, I had to bring somebody up to fill the position. And so, in a way, it, it, it forced us to be more um, focused on, on training and development and um, putting more responsibility on, on younger people. And almost every single time, they up to meet the expectation. So that, that affected how I thought about uh, leader development and um, developing potential for the next 40 years. Uh, th that experience as a lieutenant in that kind of a, frankly, very broken environment. But it's also, well, obviously a situation that many companies face in terms of, well, times are difficult, perhaps you had to suffer some, some layoffs, and then you, despite that, you need to recruit great people, you need to motivate those people to, to meet the challenge, and it was probably a very, uh, very challenging situation back then. Well, I always have believed um, that the first principle of leadership is accepting responsibility. So if I'm in charge, okay, I'm, I'm in charge, and of course it was ingrained in me both by my parents uh, and the military academy that I don't want to hear how difficult it is. You still have to be successful. You know, go back to our history. George Washington, uh, when he saved our uh, struggling independence movement, he obviously never had enough people or <laughs> enough experience, enough equipment, whatever, but he was determined. And so that's kind of the, the um, legacy that uh, we all tried to um, emulate. Um, When I, when I took over as the commander of U.S. Army Europe, of course, this is long after the Cold War. Most of our heavy equipment was gone back to the States. Um, we only had about 30,000 troops at the time in 2000, uh, at the end of 2014 when I became the commander of U.S. Army Europe. And I remembered that when I was a lieutenant in Europe, there were almost 300,000 troops in Europe, mostly in West Germany during the Cold War. Uh, and the mission then was to deter the Soviet Union, uh, to uh, protect America's strategic interests, 
and to assure our allies. Mm -hmm. Now, in 2014, I looked around, we had 30,000 troops, not 300,000. Um, NATO was significantly larger than it was uh, back in 1980. And uh, my mission was still to deter Russia, protect America's strategic interests, and uh, to assure our allies. So the task became, I had to make 30,000 look and feel like 300,000. That was it. And so, of course, you quickly realize the only way you can do that is to dump more responsibility on young people um, because they were going to be out. I mean, I would have a lieutenant or a captain, 26 years old, would be the senior U.S. Army officer in Estonia mm -hmm. who was interacting with our ambassador, with the Estonian Minister of Defense, the Estonian Army Chief, uh, international media, while he or she was doing their mission. And so uh, I would say we had about a 99.9% .9 success rate on putting young people in there. And so it really uh, restored my, didn't restore my confidence, it told me that we were, uh, reminded me that if young people were given the chance, and of course they're gonna make mistakes. Mm -hmm. So I don't, there's always gonna be that come from lack of experience. Uh, but people will usually rise to the occasion if they believe that they'll survive some mistakes that are not mistakes of integrity or willful negligence. How do you motivate people to focus on, for example, deterring Russia? So I remember back in the 2000s when everyone believed, okay, but it's over, the US had won or the West had won the uh, Cold War, um, there won't be any existential threat against us for the next 50 years or whatever and, and people were in this like had that belief okay it's over so we we've won there is there are no threats and well obviously we see now well this threat built up back mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. and well in particular western europe was pretty naive for what happened how did you motivate people well to be focused on okay well it's not tangible that there is a threat at the moment however what you do is incredibly important to keep us safe well the uh, the concept of deterrence uh, is all about having real capability uh, demonstrating that capability and demonstrating the will to use that capability so um, for our potential adversaries back then, you know, whether it was Russia, China, North Korea, whatever, you had to demonstrate that you had the capability to defeat them if they should ever make the terrible decision to attack, or that it will be so painful, so costly, so bloody for them that it's not worth it. I mean, that's what deterrence is all about. And of course, to have <clears throat> effective deterrence, Uh, you have to move as fast or faster than they can. You have to demonstrate that you not only have the people and the capabilities, but you have to have the logistics behind it as well. So I spent the whole three years I was in, uh, in Biesbaden at U.S. Army Europe, uh, every day focused on explaining to all of our soldiers, uh, all of our people, what this was about. That the best way to prevent a war is to show that you are ready for war. And um, people respond if they have a real mission. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, the worst thing in the world is to have a bunch of troops sitting in the barracks without a, a clearly defined mission. And so uh, in order to make our 30,000 look and feel like 300,000, these guys were on the road all the time. I mean, we were rotating units through everywhere from Estonia to Romania. Turkey. Uh, yeah, we were in Romania, <laughs> Bulgaria. Uh, Poland became one of the hubs, especially for our rotational forces. Uh, they were constantly on trains, moving the same kind of things they would have to do if we were in a conflict. Uh, we also had did exercises up in Finland and Sweden. This, of course, was before Russia's uh, large-scale uh, invasion in February 22. But we were practicing the things that we would have to do. And, and uh, I think for sergeants and soldiers and young officers, this felt, well, it was clear it was real. Mm-hmm. And, and so um, having accepting responsibility for a mission, knowing that your failure in that mission will have significant repercussions for your country, for the alliance, and for your troops. And, and so, uh, of course, part of our professional education includes a lot of military history. And, uh, you know, the U.S., we've been caught unprepared at the beginning of almost every war we've ever been in. And... Uh, I didn't want to be in a history book somewhere uh, where U.S. Army Europe failed because I had not done everything I possibly could, even though we were woefully undermanned and, and didn't have tanks, didn't have any of that anymore because we, you know, our government thought that this, the war was over also. I did not want to be called out. And so I was determined that we would be ready. And I, I think I was effective at conveying that sense of urgency to everyone else, um, certainly most people. And actually, <clears throat> after being in Afghanistan and Iraq for 20 years, you know, people in the army were anxious to do something else. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of coming to Europe to be have a real world mission like that uh, was of course very appealing. How does it feel to be a leader in a situation where people might not listen to you. So also this story of Charles de Gaulle telling the French government, hey, this tank warfare is going to change warfare in general a lot. And well, we should focus on like concentrate divisions. It's some kind of story that it just came to mind. So where the government didn't listen and obviously in the catastrophe of um, 19, uh, May 1940, um, How, do, how does it feel as a, as a, as a military leader, as a general, and you talk to politicians, when you talk to superiors, and they obviously have other interests in mind, like, hey, won't spend, we don't want to spend money on the, money on the military, we won't spend it somewhere else, and you kind of like fight against windmills all the time. Yeah, uh, that, that's a great... Uh metaphor because I do feel like donkey I did feel like donkey um, occasionally <laughs> but look uh, one of the things that you know growing up as an officer is that um, we are always under civilian control of the military it's it's uh, in our constitution you take an oath to the constitution all these things that, and that's a unique part of our heritage that our duty is to support and defend the constitution so yes, the president's commander in chief, but the Congress also has authorities. Um, and so at the end of the day, uh, our job was to um, make clear to our civilian leaders, here's 
here's the requirements. If you want us to do X, this is what we need to do X. If you don't give us this, then here's the risk. And you know, if they say thanks for your interest and thanks for your uh, recommendations, however, this is as much as I can, I can allocate for budget or authorities or whatever, then it's your duty to say, okay, and, and then you do your best you can with what you have. Uh, for sure, my boss, who was the commander of U.S. European Command of all Americans, Army, Navy, Air Force, um, did everything that he could to make sure that the Congress, as well as the Department of Defense and the administrations, both from the Obama administration and then Trump administration, uh, understood what the risks were. And, uh, and then you do your best with, with what you can. Um, I never liked the idea of a, of a general or admiral resigning in protest. Number one, you know, you took an oath to support the Constitution, and so unless it's an illegal order, mm -hmm. you're you're bound to carry out the order. If it's illegal, it's your duty to disobey it. But if it's a legal order, even if you don't like it, you're bound to do it. And plus, you know, a private or a sergeant doesn't get the same privilege. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, thousands of people in Vietnam would have said, "I disagree with the policy. I'm leaving." No. <laughs> So, um, I, but I liked, uh, I liked the challenge and, and eventually I got better also at uh, not only using the resources I, w I was given, uh, but also being able to articulate, because you don't want to sound like Chicken Little. Mm -hmm. If everything's a disaster, pretty soon you have no credibility. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, I, as I got older and wiser, I became more effective at deciding what what um, what was really like. I, this is I'm going to follow my sword on this one. This is this is really significant. Everything, every problem is not at that level. Yeah, you know, there's a famous quote that's attributed to Churchill. Uh, I don't know if he did it because many things are attributed to him, but I love it anyway. It was in the early stages of the war of the Second World War, and he looks around to his cabinet and he says, gentlemen, um, we are out of money. Now we're gonna to have to start thinking. And so, you know, the idea that the adversity and the shortages forced them to become very innovative. I like that. And um, well, I, I understand that, well, it's a lot about communication and a lot about communicating to uh, politicians, communicating to, to your troops. Um, how did you bridge those gaps between the CVs of people working for you? Um, mm -hmm. Well, obviously, you as a graduate from West Point, probably the world's most um, elite military academy, talking to people who had a different background, different, different education, both like serving under you, but also like in, in terms of, well, politicians also have different backgrounds. How, how did you bridge those gaps? No, that's a great question. Um, first of all, you really have to have your sort of core principles. Mm -hmm. I mean, what what is it? You, you can't do everything. Also, the leader can't be the only person that's communicating. I, I was very fortunate over the times that I was a commander to have very good subordinate deputy uh, commanders, Uh, the chief of staff, um, and I did everything I could to make sure that at every level people were in sync uh, on what our messages, what our priorities were. Um, and so the dream would be 
that a sergeant a um, long way away from me would be able to parrot mm-hmm. you know what our priorities were mm-hmm. and so this this make 30,000 look and feel like 300,000 became that uh, that sort of mantra uh, and I, I came up with that actually my principal target was the Pentagon mm-hmm. because okay I understand now that I'm not going to get more people. So in order to be successful, um, rather than cry about it, here's five things that we'll have to do in order to make 30,000 look and feel like 30,000. And these five pillars, you know, number one was put more responsibility on young people. And that affected our whole leader development. Um, But it also told all the colonels and majors and captains below me, it's okay we're going to make some mistakes, but don't don't be reluctant to put a sergeant or a junior officer in charge of something. You know, you, you have to help prepare them, and you'll have to accept responsibility when there is a mistake. But we can't afford not to use everybody's talent. Mm-hmm. So uh, I remember having, it was one of the proudest days of my Army life, was when uh, one of my officers had been down in, in Bavaria at a... a restaurant or something and she heard a sergeant who had his visiting family at the same restaurant and the sergeant was telling his uh, wife's family about making 30,000 feel like 30,000 and these five pillars I thought that's it that means that the message not only was a good message but it it penetrated like five levels of chain the chain of command and people got it and so I don't mean a gimmick, but having a clear thing that um, helps drive everything else. That, that was the key. And of course, I mean, you have to do it. You can't issue it out one time. And you also, you have to live it. You can't say that I'm willing to tolerate mistakes because this is part of growing and then crush somebody that makes a, a mistake. Because mm-hmm. then everybody will never believe you when you say, it's okay if you make a mistake. They'll never believe it. Well, a large organization like 30,000 people, uh, well, to get that message across that making mistakes is fine, it's part of the job, how do you, how do you get that done? So, um, given, well, there may be some colonels or some, uh, some, some majors who may be like, well, but my tolerance is super low, so I don't want that in my organization. So, so uh, of course, you'll never achieve perfection on this. Uh, but you have to, my uh, personal example, demonstrate, you know, first of all, I would publicly make, if I made a mistake on something, I would kind of announce it in a command meeting or on our weekly commander's updates when I've, I've got all the commanders from across the command or on the net, if you will. So to, to talk about that, but also to celebrate when somebody did this. Uh, we had a uh, we had during a major exercise that spanned Germany, Czech Republic, Romania, and Bulgaria, and uh, I got a call from one of the brigade commanders, a colonel. He said, "Sir, you're not going to believe this." I said, "Okay, tell me." He said, "We just completed a I don't know it had to be a thousand kilometer road march or convoy of vehicles." And he said, "I hope you don't mind, but we had one of our visiting cadets that was here for her summer training." I put her in charge of the convoy, and it went great. First of all, I was so proud of him that he not only 
did that, but he didn't bother to ask permission. I, I mean, that was like, this, this is it. This is, this is what we want. He knew it was the right thing to do. And uh, this young cadet, you know, this young woman had a life experience as a 20-year-old cadet, you know, leading a convoy through four different countries on an exercise. Um, so highlighting those kinds of things is, is part of it. But of course, um, everybody's got to be on message. The, uh, if, the, uh, if I'm saying it, but I've got colonels at other levels are, are crushing people to make mistakes, then it doesn't take hold. And, and again, I'm not naive. I know we never achieve perfection on that. We also, um, part of the way that I would uh, emphasize this is uh, something in the military we call the staff ride. It's basically you go out on the battlefield with a group of officers or sergeants and you use historical examples. You spend two or three days out there um, where you can emphasize your expectation. So for example, uh, twice, uh, we, do, we do this twice a year. In the springtime, I would take captains, company commanders from all over US Army Europe. And we would find uh, or go visit these uh, actual battlefields from the Second World War or Roman times and everything in between and uh, study them, walk the ground. And I always picked a place where some young leader emphasized or took risk, used initiative, was innovative because those were the character traits that I needed and wanted in our officers. So I used the staff ride as, this is good. This is what you want. And, um, you know, there is no one way to do it. It's a personal example. It's historical examples. It's the educational process. But by and large, people will pay attention most to what you do more than what you say. Well, I... Uh also heard from from many reports out of Ukraine that well perhaps one of the biggest differences between the Russian military and, and the, the armed forces in the West is that over here in Western countries we place a lot of emphasis on NCOs um, that are enabled to make decisions while in, in Eastern armies it's a bit like, okay, well, you have the general staff who gives orders and nobody dares to question, nobody dares to show own initiative. Did you think that that's a significant part of the success of, of your, well, of your work, of the work of your predecessors? If you, if you in your heart of hearts, believe in human potential, um, and that if you believe, as I do, that every person can be helped to the next level. I mean, you can, be, you can be brought up from terrible to mediocre, from mediocre to good, from good to great, from great to spur. I mean, everybody has that potential unless they just absolutely hate it, okay? And then those are people that at some point you, you no longer invest in and you say, thanks for your service, you know, you're not going to be allowed to re-enlist or we're not going to promote you or whatever. But um, if you believe in, in human capital, <clears throat> uh, and because none of us ever has, even our most elite formations never have enough people. So, and you have to assume that even in normal business, uh, some people are going to be gone off to separate schooling 
or if you're in combat, or of course it just doesn't have to be military. I mean, people get hurt. People, you know, have have uh, start families, or they get in a car accident or something. So you're always going to have to be prepared that somebody steps up to fill a gap, whether it's for a few days, a few months, or permanently. Then I think that should make it a priority, not a nice to do, but a priority uh, to <clears throat> emphasize the training and development of every person. It's always a big challenge if you've got a big event coming up, like this is a big exercise or whatever, but you have a, uh, a sergeant who uh, in the Army timeline is due to go to the next level of education, which is, an ascent, by the way, a requirement for that person to be promoted to the next level. But if you say, oh, I can't let Sergeant Weller go to this school because I really need him for this exercise. Okay, first of all, you've, you've screwed over the person mm -hmm. by holding them back from going to a school. Secondly, what does that say about your unit, your organization, that if you lose this one person, <laughs> the thing's going to fail? So uh, once, once I matured and came to that realization, I, I never stopped a person from going off to a school or something just because we had an exercise or a big event coming up. So, um, you know, your, your, your reference to the Russian way of doing things, first of all, they absolutely don't care about their people. Mm -hmm. I mean, you see this today, but what they're doing today is feeding uh, untrained soldiers into this meat grinder with, you know, we're talking about a thousand a day getting killed or wounded. Uh, it was that way under the czar. This is not a new thing. Um, and so if that's your mentality, then you have to have a very centralized command and control system that directs these masses because the Russian, the Soviet, and now the Russian way is all about math. Mm -hmm. Can you overwhelm with people and you overwhelm with firepower, which is why artillery has always been the central part of the Russian way of war. Uh, Ukrainians are not Russians with a different accent. I mean, it's a, it's a different, different sort of people. They're much more uh, Western-oriented. And um, I have to tell you the truth, though, we have learned so much from the Ukrainians. When we first started doing training with them back in 2014-15, um, after uh, Russia's invasion in 2012, um, or 2014, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, after that, when we started uh, doing training, I mean, like, wow, these, these guys have been under Russian rocket fire, artillery fire, dealing with Russian drones, Russian electronic warfare capabilities. Um, and so we, we learned a lot from them, how innovative they were. In fact, so much so that we changed our training system for the U.S. Army because the Ukrainians were dealing with something that we would have to deal with. I had a, uh, an old boss that told me, um, he said, Ben, you know what saved the army after Vietnam, after the disaster of Vietnam? He said three things. And I would thought he was going to tell me, well, it was the Abrams tank, it was the Apache help. He said, no. He said, we created a national training center, mm -hmm. which was a huge investment. And this training center uh, was a place that units would go to train in the most realistic combat environment we could possibly create and you would get crushed by the enemy force that was a full time there 
They cheated like crazy, but you go there and you get hammered until you get better. So it was, it was the, the best possible training environment. That was number one. Number two was the institutionalization of the AAR, the After Action Review. Mm -hmm. After every event at the training center, but in, back in normal life, you would conduct an After Action Review. What happened? Why did it happen? How do you fix it? And so that has become uh, yeah, institutionalized across the Army and now. Even my wife, after an event, she'll say, okay, let's do an AER. <laughs> you know, how'd that go? You know, a terrible train or, or whatever it was. Um, um, but it, the idea, it's a intellectual, critical self-analysis. And of course, the leader has to start off by saying, okay, maybe I wasn't so clear on my expectation or I waited too long to make this decision. And then that puts everybody else at ease that they can say, oh, well, you know, sir, I, I failed to do this or whatever. And then the third thing was the uh, creation of the non-commissioned officer education system. It was a commitment by the Army to have formal education at every level so that for a sergeant, if they were going to be given more responsibility, they need to be given more training mm -hmm. and professional education. So... This was a part of it. It, was, it struck me that this uh, retired general officer said those were the three things that saved the Army after Vietnam. It, and it was all about training, education, and investing enabling. in people. Yeah. And, and enabling mm -hmm. so that young leaders would be better able to, because we lost so many thousands of officers and sergeants who were killed in Vietnam um, or decided to leave the Army after they got out of Vietnam. So we had to institutionally invest more in uh, in people, so that we could enable them to take on that responsibility. And um, well, of course, I have to ask you about uh, Ukraine, Russia, and uh, what's currently going on there. Um, how frustrating is the situation for you to have warned about exactly that being a threat for us, and not enough has happened or had happened. So, um, so there's two aspects of that. Let me let me address um, from the U.S. side, and I think somewhat from the German side. Um, even though the U.S. and Germany are the number one and number two contributors to Ukraine, neither the president, who I think has done a very good job on most aspects of this, but the president has failed the most critical task, which is to clearly identify what is our objective. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, that's the role of the leader, is to explain to everybody, here's the objective. Um, this is what we got to get done. And so if the president were to say, it is in America's strategic interest that Ukraine defeats Russia, because it will help us economically, it'll keep us out of a war so Russia won't continue on against a NATO country, and it will send a signal to the Chinese that do not think that we're not prepared to defend the uh, international law, international agreements, freedom of navigation, human rights, we are. And so the president has not done that. And so because of that, the administration has not had good policy about whether or not to provide certain capabilities to Ukraine. Germany, uh, the same thing, the Bundeskanzler, I mean, who would have thought that a, a German Bundeskanzler from the, the Social Democrats would be the number two contributor to Ukraine, mm -hmm. but he stopped short of saying what the desired outcome is. And uh, I think, so this part is, is very frustrating. Um, 
on the other on the other hand, we know from history that war is a test of will, and it's a test of logistics. Um, I think Russia is in big trouble. I mean, after ten years of war, they still only with every advantage, they still only control eighteen percent of Ukraine. Um, they've lost three hundred thirty thousand plus killed and wounded. Um, their air force, which is significantly more modern and larger than the Ukrainian air force, still cannot fly safely in Ukraine. They have not achieved air superiority, and it looks like last night they just had two other very, very sophisticated aircraft shot down over the Azov Sea. The Russian Navy, the Great Black Sea Fleet, is having to withdraw in part from Sevastopol and Crimea, and Ukraine doesn't even have a navy. But it's because of their innovative approach. Um, I think 2024 is going to be a test of can we um, provide what's needed. Right now, I'm very worried about this because the U.S. Congress uh, has balked at doing its job, particularly the how U.S. the Republican-led House of Representatives. But the president has got to make the case. Um, it the Ukraine the Russians cannot knock out. Ukraine. They don't have enough. All they can do is keep launching precision weapons at civilian targets and keep pushing their own untrained soldiers into the meat grinder to convey to the West, hey, we can do this forever. That's what they hope because they can see that we are wavering. So the test of logistics, but also the test of will. Clearly, Ukrainian people and Ukrainian soldiers have superior will. You, you couldn't fill up uh, this room with a number of Russians who want to be in Ukraine. Ukrainians are defending their home. The, the real test of will is between the Kremlin and Washington and Berlin. And, and that's where I think this year is going to be very important. What I find pretty staggering is that when you look back in, in history and, well, when uh, Pearl Harbor was attacked and, well, Afterwards, the U.S. was fully on board, fully committed, well, turning every factory into mm -hmm. an arms production place. Uh, well, obviously, Britain and, and Germany, the very same. Also, in, in times of, well, the Cold War, you were able and willing to do things. Why? Has the West failed, for example, delivering half a million artillery shells to, to Ukraine? Uh, once again, it comes to leadership. Um, the leader has to clearly identify what's at stake and then explain to our populations. Everybody would much rather be spending money on schools and, and highways and health care and you know, those kinds of things instead of paying taxes or ammunition that you hope you'll never have to use. I mean, but, that, but that's what deterrence is. And now we are seeing the price of failed deterrence. I mean, the Russians saw that we, the West, had failed to respond after they invaded Georgia in 2008, after they invaded Ukraine in 2014 the first time, after they uh, jumped over the red line in Syria and helped the Assad regime use chemical weapons against his own people, and we really did nothing. Uh, and then they saw the catastrophe of January the 6th, as well as our own terrible, the way Afghanistan ended. And uh, they saw that Germany was still building Nord Stream 2 pipeline up until the very end. So I think the Kremlin thought the West will continue to do nothing. They're not ready. They don't have enough stuff. And um, 
So they, I think, then the Kremlin, they thought, uh, let's go ahead and finish the job in Ukraine. Let's destroy Ukraine. The West, they'll shake their fists. There'll be a few more sanctions, but we'll get around those as we always do. And so they launched their large-scale invasion in February of 2022. Now here we are. Not only 330,000 Russian troops have been killed or wounded, but you know who knows how many Ukrainians have been killed. Not that many, but still not as many, but over 100,000 killed and wounded. Destruction all over Ukraine. Uh, millions of people that normally depended on grain coming from Ukraine not getting it. Uh, energy uh, supplies disrupted. And of course, now the Iranians see that we're struggling. We're not committed here. And uh, I don't think it was a coincidence when Hamas attacked Israel back on October 7th. Iran is Russia's uh, most important, closest ally. It's like Russia is Iran's closest ally. So Iran, through their proxies, the Houthis, Hamas, and Hezbollah, are creating a lot of problems in the Middle East that distracts us and diverts uh, resources. And of course, this has led to real unrest at home with massive protests. Um, then the North Koreans are providing ammunition to Russia, and the Chinese are watching. Does the West, do, do the United States and its allies have the political will, the defense industrial capacity, and the military capability to help Ukraine defeat Russia, help Israel destroy Hamas while pushing Israel to accept a two-state solution, to deter North Korea from its uh, very uh, erratic and dangerous behavior launching missiles over Japan, and to st for China to see that we still have enough to be able to deter them from making a terrible mistake. That, that's what's at stake. And I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, the example of in the Second World War, you know, summer of 1942, the war had been going on for three years. Uh, the Allies had suffered defeat after defeat after defeat after defeat. And uh, when the U.S. finally enters the war after Pearl Harbor, I mean, it was disastrous for three years. Churchill, did, um, fortunately, and Roosevelt did not decide that they should negotiate with Hitler or Emperor Hirohito, they, they got organized. Mm -hmm. They explained to their populations what was at stake. Uh, they put all the industry uh, onto a wartime footing. Uh, they uh, got the populations involved because they were able to explain to them what was at stake and raised massive armies, navies, and air forces. And it was still three more years, but the, you know, we know the outcome of the Second World War. That was, that was leadership, that was getting organized, that was articulating what's at stake, why it's important, and people got behind that. Clearly defined objective, clear communications, and determination. Well, I find so weird or worrisome is that it's actually not that difficult, right? So it's actually pretty pretty obvious that if we want to maintain our way of living and I think for everyone who has ever been to one of those countries you just mentioned and you felt that kind of that sense of, well, not being free, the, the lack of freedom in every aspect of daily life, if you want to maintain and defend this way of living, you need to act now and you need to act rapidly. Yeah. But Apparently, it's much harder to communicate with some leaders than, than others. 
Well, if you go to Estonia or Latvia or Lithuania or Poland, you know, they're not confused. Uh, Finland, they're not confused. Mm -hmm. they, they understand what's at stake here. They have lived under or next to Russia for, obviously, centuries. Uh, they're not confused about the threat. They're not confused about the need to do things. And you can still have, I mean, look at Finland, uh, Baltic countries, they're all prosperous, they have good education system, they're, uh, they're able to do, you know, enjoy uh, the benefits of a liberal democratic society, capitalism, but they're not confused about what happens if they're not prepared. And so they are paying that price. And uh, usually the, the sense of urgency decreases the further to the West you are. So here in Germany, you know, uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, people are like, well, come on, climate change is obviously the only real threat. I mean, they just, most, I think most Germans now realize that what Russia is and what China represents. Uh, that doesn't mean you can't trade, that doesn't mean you can't do things, but you have to have your eyes wide open. And this takes real bold leadership. Uh, our leaders have to talk to us as if we are adults. And I think right now, too many people don't trust what they hear from their leadership because they don't speak to us as if we were adults. Then thanks a lot for your time. I really enjoyed the conversation and, and all your insights. Great, thanks. Well, I, I enjoyed it too. You made me, you brought back a lot of memories. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I loved it. Um, and thanks a lot for, for watching, for listening. And I'm sure you all, uh, we all learned a lot today about leadership, leadership in the army, how to motivate people, how to get people engaged, empowered. See you next time.